Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Today on Truth and Movies, Sam Mendes goes over the top in the immersive First World War drama 1917. You have a brother in the 2nd Battalion. Yes, sir. They're walking into a trap. Your orders are to deliver a message calling off tomorrow morning's attack. If you fail, it will be a massacre. Taika Waititi directs the Hitler youthful coming-of-age comedy Jojo Rabbit. (laughs) Did you know Jews can read each other's minds? But how would you know if you saw one? They could look just like us. Hi. The Tramp takes a shot at the Führer in Charlie Chaplin's The Great Dictator. By a strange trick of fate, the ruthless dictator and Charlie resemble each other like two peas in a pod. Except that while Adenoid Hinkle makes millions of people tremble, Charlie makes them die of laughter. Well, coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Hello there, movie truthers. Happy New Year. Welcome to 2020. It's Michael Leader here, sitting in the host chair, sitting across this week from Adam Woodward. Hiya. And Hannah Woodhead. Hello. How are we both doing? How are we all doing? Very well, yeah. Suitably rested and watched a lot of movies over the, the holiday season, mm-hmm. so yeah. And so many movies coming. So many. This Too is many. that awards corridor, isn't it, where we're getting <laughs> big hitters every week, right? Yeah. We have the sort of benefit of being sent stacks of award screeners pre uh, well, when all the voting, I guess, is happening. So I, I've got into that point of just basically not knowing when anything's actually coming out and forgetting that something already, like Jojo Rabbit, is in cinemas now and mm-hmm. we, we've sort of forgot to cover it before. So, um, But it feels like a film that's been coming out for ages, right? Because, mm-hmm. Hannah, you saw it in like Toronto or something. And, yeah. and then there's other films which aren't out until... Uh, much later, like April or something, which I've still got screeners for, so it's a bit of weird. And films like Parasite, which everyone's talking about right now, which is coming out in February. It's I mean, a the cycle crazy time of Parasite's year. been so long, and Portrait of a Lady as well, because we saw those at Cannes in May, and mm. obviously they're coming out like basically 10 months later, which I, I get it, but it does mean we're sort of sadly a bit <laughs> removed. <laughs> But, you know, I, 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 I'm happy that good movies are getting recognition mm. and some good, some not-so-good movies are getting recognition. It's a well. very discombobulating time of year. But before we dip, dip into 2020's new releases, we do have some... Uh, we have, we have a, a matter to attend to from last year's films. A film that actually didn't do very well at the box office over the Christmas break was Cats. <laughs> uh, but we got a letter from Helen McGrath who uh, says here... I was listening recently to your Cats review. Uh, I've not seen the film, but on the Bovril sign, if if listeners may remember, we talked about how it was very conspicuous that one of the neon lights up there in in Cats London was Bovril. Wouldn't that just be to mark the area of Piccadilly Circus as opposed to any incongruous product placements? For years, there was famously a massive Bovril sign of the Piccadilly Circus, see attached pick. And Helen attaches a pick here where, where it has a big Bovril sign. It's definitely Piccadilly Circus with also Wrigley's and a big sign saying Guinness is good for you. Well, I'm happy that Tom Hooper got one thing right. You know, there was a lot wrong with that film, but no one could accuse him of not knowing where the big Bovril sign was. Well, I think I will accuse him of not knowing where the big Bovril sign was because I think in the film it's in Trafalgar Square. 
not Piccadilly Circus, which this picture shows. So he still managed to mess it up, honestly. The thing we were, I think we were getting at was just how absurd it was that all other neon signs, yeah, all other theatre marquees had puns around cats. <laughs> and then not Bovril. And then Bovril. <laughs> there's something there, there's some deep in-joke that we're not getting. I don't know. Maybe they were simultaneously trying to be accurate to historical London and get in the pocket of Big Bovril. Because that, that film's not made any money, so maybe, like, the Bovril money is going to tide them over. I don't know. I mean, they were given a blank cheque by Bovril. I, I do think... It, it, we've had quite a lot of feedback about that podcast. Very good, actually, for, for uh, the general kind of emails we get. But a lot of people were like, actually, I think you'll find the Bovril. And I was like, why does everyone know about this Bovril side apart from me? Is this, like, part of when you are born in London? You kind of... Well, yes, and here's the, the big book of Bovril for you, for your baby. <laughs> Because I only moved here five years ago and I didn't have any idea about this Bovril business. Well, you know, you learn something new every day. Thanks, Helen. Thank I, you so much, Helen. Ge- that's genuinely, very... that's the kind of trivia I love. So if you, everyone's got any more trivia for us... Please do send them in. On the, uh, the box office flop mm-hmm. that was Cats, I read a really interesting piece. I think it's on Forbes this week, just really dissecting um, why the film failed commercially and it's really interesting it sort of dives into how much of an anomaly this is for for this kind of big you know award season baiting uh star-studded movie to actually not not just like underperform but basically it's not going to make anywhere near its um its budget back so really a really interesting read if anyone's interested in that sort of sort of stuff our good friend the safety brothers uncut gems released uh, over christmas in the united states and made more money than cats at the box office which I think is pretty incredible for an independent film that won't have gone on anywhere near as many screens as Cats did. They should have got Adam Sandler to be the magical Mr. Mistopheles. He's my jellical choice. But that's a good segue, <laughs> Hannah, because, of course, we're big fans of the Safety Brothers on this show. We had uh, an interview special that went out over the Christmas break with the two brothers, and also this Thursday we're having the screening of Daddy Longlegs, their, one of their early features. We are, yeah. Their first uh, feature they directed together will be down at the Prince Charles. Uh, what? Well, I was going to say watching. We will be watching it, but um, we will also be hosting a live episode of Truth and Movies, you, me and uh, I good... Good boy, David Jenkins, and we'll be talking about uh, Daddy Longlegs and Uncut Gems. So come on down. We've got some signed Uncut Gems posters to give away as well. So it's well worth staying in your seat after the after the film finishes. It's only a hundred minute movie, so it's not like a long one. It's yeah. going to be a late live show, though. It is. It's going to be a Truth of Movies after dark. Uh, we're making some, yeah, some soft jazz playing. Oh, Get yeah. us all the whiskey. <laughs> but, you know. Have that energy into 2020, but I mean, I I I, I know anyone that is has been listening to this podcast or indeed following our Twitter will have probably noticed my merciless campaign about Uncut Gems. But I do think if you're going to watch Uncut Gems, or if you are, if you've seen Uncut Gems, um, you'll enjoy, you'll get a lot out of watching Daddy Longlegs. I think you can definitely trace the lineage. So yeah, yeah, I highly recommend it. Even if you don't come to screening, just go and watch it. It's a great movie. And if you are interested, please do come along to that screening, especially if you're free and around in London in the Prince Charles Cinema on th- on Thursday the 9th of January. That's today. Tickets at their website. Yeah, 8.45pm. Before we crack on with new release reviews, Adam, any other business from the Twilight Lies Towers? Well, just to tease that we've got a new issue coming out. Ah. Um, put to bed just before Christmas hitting shops hitting newsstands this week um, we're going to be making an announcement about that on Thursday as well uh, and David I think is on next week so he'll talk a bit more about the issue and what to expect from it but yeah look out for that announcement oh, brilliant anyway we should crack on with this World War special we're going to be covering both World Wars here in our new releases this week up first starting appropriately with the First World War in 1917 <laughs> At the height of the First World War, two young British soldiers are given a seemingly impossible mission. In a race against time, they must cross enemy territory and deliver a message that will stop a deadly ambush on thousands of British soldiers. Let's hear a clip. You have a brother in the 2nd Battalion? Yes, sir. They're walking into a trap. Your orders are to deliver a message calling off tomorrow morning's attack. If you fail, it will be a massacre. We've got orders to cross here. That is the German front line. If we're not clever about this, no one will get to your brother. I will. 
So, Adam, 1917. This sort of came out of nowhere halfway through last year. We heard that Sam Mendes was putting together this First World War thriller, spectacular thriller, Roger Deakins doing cinematography, something about it being almost shot in one continuous take. Mm. How how's it turn out? Yeah, I guess we should tackle the one take mm-hmm. um, aspect of this film first and foremost because I'm not really sure where that came from. Um, the first I sort of I'd heard about the film um, uh, towards I think the middle of last year when there was talk about them them shooting it and then suddenly the trailer I think just dropped mm-hmm. and uh, and and yeah suddenly you, you're like wow they, they've kind of made this film and it seemed like a quite a big thing especially for a director like Sam Mendes who directed the last two James Bond films and is generally quite I don't think well regarded in in sort of British cinema and yeah I'm not sure whether that came out of his camp and and that was a a PR message that kind of got misconstrued slightly the whole one shot thing Mm. but really the film I think is uh, is, is more accurate to describe it as uh, taking place in real time right so it takes place over essentially 24 hours and there's there's quite a nice um, symmetry to the narrative Mm. Um, we should say it's very light on plot it is uh, if if you do like more action from your war films and this probably is one for you because it does kind of throw you straight into the action and it's pretty um, relentless as well once Mm. it gets going I think the first scene um, when when the the two young privates are given their mission and they have to initially leave the trenches and cross over no man's land just that uh, that sequence is one of the most nerve-wracking and, and immersive sequences I've seen in, in, in any war film, I think. It's wonderfully shot by Roger Deakins on, on um, cinematography duties. Uh, just the actual, not just the technical aspect of how they filmed it um, in a continuous take, or to feel like it's a continuous take, but actually the the logistics and the mechanics of how they follow the two actors, because they're essentially sliding through mud and stepping over kind of dead bodies and horses and, and all sorts, and I, I was just watching it thinking, how are they actually filming this? It's quite, it's quite amazing. Um, and they're obviously using like steady cams. It was shot um, digitally as well, which obviously enables them to make it feel like a, a, a one, one take thing. Um, it's a little bit of a shame that they stick with that. I think using that technique, using that formal bit of showmanship initially works really well, immerses you in the film. I think the longer the film goes on, the more this uh, this whole mechanic actually is a bit of a roadblock for the the, the immersiveness that is, is supposed to be engendered by mm-hmm. it. So, yeah, it just, it just kind of gets to a point where it, it becomes a little bit boring, actually. <laughs> I think it's one of those films where it shows the value of a good cut and a good editor. Um, I, I bet the actual editor... I mean, I'm not sure how this film was edited, essentially, mm-hmm. whether there was like multiple takes ultimately stitched together, um, much like Birdman mm-hmm. in, in recent years and famously Alfred Hitchcock's Rope. That there's, a f- there's a little bit of like f- effects work going on here, like little cuts hidden in the shadows and things like that, so you can kind of look out for them. And we should say as well, there's one really hard cut in the middle of yeah. the film, which essentially um, separates it from like night and day. Um, but yeah, it just really left me feeling like this This is a film probably needed an editor, needed some cuts, because cuts can release tension as much as they can build it, right, if, if used correctly. So um, I think it sort of puts itself into a corner a little bit, this film, which it can't really get out of. It, I'm going to invoke the D word quite early in this, this segment, Dunkirk, mm. and it feels like that long take approach is Sam Mendes's way of differentiating this film from what Christopher Nolan did in Dunkirk which is the exact opposite right with cutting back and forth and multiple timelines and multiple threads so yeah. having this play out in real time what I think differentiates this in a good way particularly early on in the film is is the fact that it takes place towards the end of the first world war mm. everyone is really beaten down by this long slog of a war and part of the setup is the german line has retreated and they're crossing into no man's land former enemy territory that's been deserted so there's so much tension and suspense in these early scenes of just open agoraphobia inducing space with no one around it's the complete opposite of dunkirk which really did you know beat you into submission mm. with the, with the, the tension of, a, of another flyby um but yeah maybe it doesn't sustain that all the way through hannah what did you make of 1917 was this your sort of jam um i'm not like a huge war movies person i didn't really like Dunkirk I thought it was okay I wasn't really sold on it as much as everyone else I like George Mackay so I was quite excited to see him 
do his uh, do his thing. And I think it's 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 kind of interesting how the film sets him up basically as the um, initially at least you feel like he's kind of a not not really the lead character, and then a, a thing happens, mm-hmm. and it very much becomes this. You know, he's he's completely on his own, both physically and mentally. He's very kind of like you say, very worn down and beaten by this uh, relentless war. And I think it's getting that sense of kind of how desperate it was towards the end of the war is really um, what I wouldn't say I enjoyed it, but I think was the most interesting thing. You know, the way that they, the soldiers are sort of skin and bone, everyone, like all the all their commanders are just in pieces. There's a lovely um Andrew Scott scene in this hot priest of fleabag fame, um where he's only he only he's only on the screen for about two minutes. Hot sergeant. Hot sergeant. <laughs> but he's just kind of so withering and disinterested in in uh, the very, very important mission that George Mackay and um Dean Charles Chapman have mm-hmm. and he's just like do what you want I don't care anymore we're all going to die which I, I very much enjoyed that there's a real sense that all the kind of supporting players in this have their own storyline mm-hmm. going on in in um, in tangent tandem rather to the the actual storyline which I liked because when you've got kind of these big hit there are a lot of very famous people in this for about two minutes at a time could I suggest uh, you know th- there's not much to spoil in this film but if, if anyone's interested in seeing this film and they don't know who's in this <laughs> I, I suggest playing a game of guess the guess the cameo yeah because you can almost think okay what sort of middle-aged or just not a middle-aged bit older what sort of actor would play the general what sort of actor would play a sergeant a lieutenant and you can probably guess who's going to be in I, this film I was really hoping that um, Stephen Fry would pop up in sort of Blackadder guys <laughs> yeah. at some point and Where, sadly he doesn't no Fry no Fulis yeah. opportunities were missed but, but it's, it's interesting how it sort of follows a loose video game structure as mm-hmm. well so they're mm-hmm. on this like bigger mission but each um, it, it's sort of chaptered slightly so you have different locations even though you're following these guys um and that there isn't really like a, a, a break in terms of the continuity of the geography. Um, there are very distinct, I think, little chapters and, and missions, submissions almost within the film. And it's like you get to a point where a, a stalwart British character actor comes in. Checkpoint. It is like a checkpoint. And it is it's like a, a little cutscene that happens in, in the movie. I don't know whether that was intentional. I feel like Sam Mendes maybe isn't a, a big video game guy. But I'd love to know because this, I, I'd go so far as to say I wish this was a video game instead of a film. Mm. Uh, the fact that the that real-time aspect uh, really does lend itself to, to feeling like you're playing a video game or watching a Let's Play video game. It's like watching someone else play a video game. But then also... The aesthetic um, is very similar to a, a, a quite a few recent video games. One I will, you know, two other reference would be Hideo Kojima's Death Stranding, which is a walking simulator across a barren landscape. But then also The Last of Us, uh, the, the, the Naughty Dog PlayStation game from a couple of years ago, where it is just mainly long stretches of people talking while walking through desolate you know, locales. And that's what this has. It has set pieces that you get to. You get to a, um, an, an abandoned farmhouse and it's like, is there somebody in there? What's going to happen? They may, you, you have planes flying over and, and dogfighting. But then m- most of it is just these Tommies sharing stories with each other in, in between the moments of, of suspense. And that really is like a certain strand of video games right now, which... I'd love to have played rather than have Sam Mendes playing it for me. Mm. I think one of the other fascinating points about this film is that it's, it's supposedly based partly on Sam Mendes' own grandfather's yeah. um, experience in the war, and, and which he kind of diarised. And it feels like a doesn't feel like a very personal film. Mm. Um, it's Sam Mendes, you know, a, a, on the poster or whatever. But if you'd shown this to me and not told me who directed it, I probably wouldn't be able to tell you. And I think he isn't necessarily someone who does have you know, a, a signature style, but this doesn't feel like the work of someone who is, is putting a kind of really personal story on the screen. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not necessarily to totally to the film's detriment, but I think when you're talking about maybe less so nowadays the, the First World War, but certainly those t- the two wars, basically, you know, they are invariably, they bring up very personal feelings and connections for people um, much like Peter Jackson's documentary did for a lot of people last right. year. And yeah, I mean, Dunkirk, I think, to a lesser extent, but still there was there was a lot of conversation around that. And one of the things I thought that was fascinating, the criticism around that was um, the decision not to show the enemy. Mm-hmm. And I wish he'd kind of stuck with that. I think that would actually have made much more sense here than it does in Dunkirk. What scores would you give this, Adam? In, in anticipation, enjoyment, in retrospect? 
I was kind of intrigued. I think the fact that it came out of nowhere that that always instantly um, excites me when something is seemingly just been made quite surreptitiously and and just dropped. So I'd say maybe a four for anticipation, and the, and also just the idea of Sam Mendes doing anything other than a Bond film. Um, I, but I'd say yeah, th- probably a three three for enjoyment and in retrospect. Hannah, yeah, I'm kind of the same. Maybe a three in anticipation, just because I'm not really a Mendes head, as I believe the fans are called. Um, and then enjoyment in retrospect, three. It's not a film I've really thought about much mm-hmm. since I saw it. Doesn't hasn't really stayed with me. I will say, I mean, it, it looks fantastic. I think yeah. Deakins might be on for another. Oscar mm. after all these years. I can agree with both of you. I think this is sort of threes down the line for me. It is spectacular. It's really good to see on the big screen, but it's not. This is this film is gets is racking up so many award nominations. Of course, you can't spell awards without war, and this sort of film is what gets uh, big uh, nominations. Nine Baftas this week got Best Drama, the Golden Globes. The thing is, and we'll see in the coming weeks how it does in Bafta and Oscar. But I think it's just a very uncontroversial film Mm -hmm. for them to give awards to. It's not Joker, which I think there will be a certain subset of the people who vote for these awards who will be like, well, I'm not voting for that, so comment, baby. Whereas 1917 is just a very, like, handsome-looking prestige drama made by a director who has a lot of good faith and goodwill towards him. So I can understand why it's getting the awards. I just don't think it should be. Okay, I suspect it will get a lot of technical awards... And possibly lose out on the on the big ones, but I think it's deserving of the technical awards. Mm-hmm. I, I do think it is a, a, a good, solid bit of filmmaking. That's we'll your see. poster quote from good. Hannah Woodhead. Uh, good, solid <laughs> filmmaking. Competent, competent job all round. <laughs> for 1917. If you do go and see that film this week, let us know what you make of it at the usual channels, at Truth and Movies on Twitter, truthandmovies at tcolondon.com via email, or at the comments section at lwlies.com slash podcast. Up next, we're moving on to the Second World War for Taika Waititi's Jojo Rabbit. Writer-director Taika Waititi brings his signature style to the Second World War comedy. Jojo, a young German lad and a keen member of the Hitler Youth in the waning days of the war, has his worldview turned upside down when he discovers his mother is hiding a young Jewish girl in their attic. Aided only by his idiotic imaginary friend, Adolf Hitler, played by Taika Waititi himself, Jojo must face some tough questions about his beliefs and his country. Let's hear a clip. Ten-year-olds shouldn't be celebrating war and talking politics. Hitler. I wish more of our young boys had your blind fanaticism. <laughs> Did you know Jews can read each other's minds? But how would you know if you saw one? They could look just like us. Hi. <laughs> you know what I am? See? A Jew. Jeez, that was intense. What am I going to do? No idea. Got it! I was negotiating. Go down the house and blame Winston Churchill. Or negotiate. The trailer for Jojo Rabbit there. So, Hannah, you saw this at Toronto last year, where there was quite a lot of excitement about this film because Taika Waititi, after Thor and so on, is, is quite hot right now. Yeah, um, he seems to have been attached to every project going since uh, Thor Ragnarok came out in 2016, 2017. I feel it's it's a long time in movies, isn't it? So no one can accuse Taika of not being hardworking. Um, And this has been a passion project of his for many years. I remember hearing about this years ago. I think Mm. it was on the blacklist in 2012, 2011. So it's been knocking around Hollywood for quite a long time. I think it was just a case of him getting a bit of a higher profile in order to make it. And obviously, uh, after making Ragnarok, he kind of got a lot of studio goodwill. And so he assembled this big old Hollywood cast to do this uh, Mm -hmm. anti-hate satire, as, as they're calling it. And there was a whole thing after the Fox Disney merger there was a lot of news stories that came out about this film and kind of um, the conflict, I guess, between Disney and Fox, because this is a Fox film, and apparently Disney Disney were not um, super sure it would fit in with their audience. So I'm not entirely sure if this is the vision of Jojo Rabbit that was intended, right? but it's the vision we've got. And what did we get? 
<laughs> where, where do you start with, with Jojo Rabbit? So we have Roman Griffin Davis, who's mm-hmm. a young British actor, very charming, 12-year-old, playing this very idealistic, fully paid-up member of the Hitler Youth. Um, but he's also a bit of a coward, and that's where he gets his name, because he won't kill a rabbit, which apparently is a thing that they do in that they did in Nazi youth groups, I don't know. Mm. Strange, strange nickname origin. And anyway, he discovers that his mother, uh, Scott Johansson, is hiding a young Jewish girl in mm. the house. And he is kind of forced to confront his prejudice because he meets this um, young Jewish girl played by Thomasin McKenzie, who is a wonderful young actress. She was in Leave No Trace. And... Yeah, I guess I, I, I give you the, I'm giving you the plot rundown here. That's the plot, right? But there's so because as with a lot of Taika Waititi films, there's a lot of business around the story, right? Yeah. So of course, the big it's all over the posters. Taika Waititi is playing Hitler in this movie in a very comic, caricatured, yeah. completely unrecognisable sense. Right? Yeah, I think that was the kind of whole joke around the film was that you have he uh, Taika's a very prolific tweeter, and he said, "I can't think of anything that's going to piss off Hitler, the ghost of Hitler, more than having a." Maori Jew play play him in a film, um, which you know, fair enough. I'm being very diplomatic about this because I do understand. You know, he he is a person of color and has Jewish mm. uh, parents. Uh, well, I think his mother's Jewish, so I don't want to you know kind of piss on his chips and say that he doesn't have a right to tell a story in the way he finds helpful and productive to him. But I do think this is one of the worst films I've seen in a very long time, and I hated it. <laughs> Can you get to the heart of that in the, in the space of this podcast? So there's a, yeah, there's a wonderful quote from another critic. I can't remember who it is exactly. They said that um, it doesn't satirise Nazism; it, it infantilises the Holocaust, which I think is totally. Uh, there is no better way of summing up this film. It reduces the systematic extermination of millions of Jewish people. And not only Jewish people, of course, you know, they were not the only victims of the Holocaust. It reduces it to this, like, oh, Hitler was a bit silly bit, which I, I think is just, like, abhorrent. I don't really think that Jojo Rabbit tries to satirise anything. There isn't, there is even a scene in which um, it kind of tries to, like, redeem the Nazis and be like, oh, actually, there were some nice Nazis too, which is just a very strange thing to point out in 2019 2020 it's Mm -hmm. like yeah we know but the problem is that they were still nazis even though they were nice people but yeah it does slot into that subgenre of second world war films like the boy in striped pajamas life is beautiful which takes a sort of juvenile the view of a young child um Mm. trying to process these horrors is it successful i tell you the problem with that here and i've i've heard that argument a lot that it is told from a child's perspective the problem is not that. The problem is that everyone in the film behaves like a child. Mm-hmm. So the other Nazis that we see um, and spend a bit of time with, like Sam Rockwell and um, Rebel Wilson and Stephen Merchant, they're all behaving. It's a very, like, obviously cartoonish uh, caricature of, 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 of Nazism, but the, the, the stuff they do is just not... Um, really plausible. They're basically acting like total buffoons. They're acting like children playing dress up or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that just undermines any attempt at satire the film could attempt. Because you know, if you have essentially adults behaving childishly, even a twelve-year-old boy, I don't think would look at it and 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 be like, "Oh yeah, that makes sense." Like, what they're doing is something that I could get behind doesn't really try and explore or understand his fanaticism and why he suddenly is so, you know... Why, I guess why he's so devout in his in his belief in, in the Fuhrer and, mm-hmm. and, and in, what, in what his country is doing because he's seeing adults and he's seeing people who are, uh, you know, essentially supposed to be guiding figures in his life behaving like people who, who have got an IQ that was below his and the, the only adult that actually acts sensibly is his mother and he doesn't really seem to pay much attention to her for some reason um, and I think the, the big thing this film lacks ultimately is context right. so you know you can you can depict and, and quite easily satirise and lampoon Nazism and Hitler is obviously a very easy target and has, has been widely ridiculed and we'll come on to Charlie Chaplin later but you can't really do that without providing some context as to what was actually going on and exploring mm. like the root of <clears throat> what was happening in Nazi Germany at the time. And I think the thing that really sums this up for me 
So today is David Bowie's birthday as we're recording this and his his uh, his song Heroes plays at the end of this film which I think just on on a very superficial level is like if you're using Heroes at this point in time in in your film then you, you, you someone needs to have a word with you because <laughs> is that is such a kind of passé even like a, a a cover or a foreign language version of it that's such a sort of passé thing to do but at the very start of the film there's another song a very famous pop song um, by a little-known band called The Beatles uh, playing over the opening credits of the film and it's their German-language version of I Want to Hold Your Hand mm. and it's matched with archive footage of rallies and, and, and basically like rapturous Nazi crowds. Lots of saluting going on. Lots of saluting. And, and when I was watching this, I, I was kind of thinking this is, a, this is actually quite ingenious, like drawing a, a comparison between Beatlemania mm. and what was going on in Germany in the 1930s. And it's such a shame that he doesn't really explore that and, again, provide context to that. I think he just uses it as, as quite a cute opening refrain for the film to set the tone and, you know, there's possibly a little bit of a, a, a suggestion of, of what we're going to expect from Jojo and his relationship with his imaginary friend character. But I think, it's, yeah, it sets up this idea of how fanaticism or what fanaticism looks like, basically, and then just doesn't really explore that. Yeah, I think the, the lack of interrogation in this film, really, it all just feels a bit slapdash. The other thing that I've had many conversations about this film with my friends is that you never really know where it's meant to be set. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, bit, that's a very important thing about World War II. <laughs> um, so it's set in the kind of dying days of the Second World War. And maybe uh, it's somewhere in Germany, I think is meant to be the point, mm-hmm. but it's very light on kind of where. Because at the end, we kind of see um, the end of the war, basically. And it's kind of... I, it really threw me... And maybe this is coming... I'm So, I, you know, I, I studied history at university, so maybe I'm coming at it from a very pedantic point of view. But it just all feels very sort of um, generalised and very um, baby's first history lesson. And I, I really think we're, we're past that stage now. I think you can't talk about... Um, something as vile as the Nazi regime without kind of being a little bit serious. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I think it's just... It was so disappointing to me to watch this film because I really thought if anyone could do this right, it would be Taika Waititi. I'm a big fan of his. I really like a lot of his work. But I just... I'm not sure that the kind of cutesy, whimsical approach works for this kind of content. It makes me look again at his other films, and I've liked all of his films to date. And you know, full disclosure, when I've been programming screenings in the past, I helped figure out the right situation around his what he considers his proper debut, Boy, mm. um, after Eagle vs. Shark. We we put screen the first screenings on in in the UK for many years here, and I think that this film shares some DNA with Boy and with Hunt for the Wilder People, the films where he has created these great young boy protagonists but it shares the very silly comedy of something like What We Do in the Shadows where it can't take anything seriously for a second until there is a moment in the film which we've not touched on where it does try and bid for a sentimental, emotional point and it doesn't feel earned it doesn't feel like it's taken itself very seriously and it makes me think that he's actually not a very graceful or consistent or thoughtful filmmaker and mm. it's, a, it's, a, it's quite a shame to make that realisation six films into a that career that moment as well I think it, it does feel quite shocking in the context of the film because up until that point everything has been very cutesy and whimsical and ho 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 aren't the Nazis funny um, but then after that it's kind of just life goes on mm-hmm. and I mean, when people see the film, they'll, they'll realise how kind of implausible that, that is. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's just... What a cast to be so kind of wasted. I don't think there's any... Well, maybe Thomasin McKenzie, but I don't think... I think it's kind of a thankless role she has. But mm-hmm. I, I, Sam Rockwell, I, th- I found incredibly grating. I think the one person, the one Nazi, who kind of, I thought, really could have brought this home was uh, Stephen Merchant, because I think he really has this very creepy kind of uh, Indiana Jones and and the Ark of the Covenant (laughs) vibe to him in this. But that's the thing. Like, I think there were times when it really could have gone away from this cutesiness and taken us down a darker path and it it would have made it more kind of interesting. I I really do just think it's such a, a sad waste of a film. Yeah, I I will note before we go to the scores, this has been... There's always one. 
Green Book was last year, Three Billboards outside of Missouri the year before. <laughs> There's always a film that everyone seems divided on between mm. critics on the original initial screenings versus critics on wider screenings and the public see it and then Oscars and awards come out. And this seems to be the one that people are disagreeing on quite strongly this year. And so opinions may vary and if listeners have seen this film and love it please let us know what you make of it but let's get the scores um hannah i'll come to you first for the three scores um so i was probably at a four in anticipation i i genuinely thought this could be quite good um was a little bit apprehensive after the first trailer dropped but then yeah so I then went in at Toronto had the benefit I think of coming to it before the discourse and it was like a a one one I really mm. really could not jive with this and it made me quite angry because I think Taika is a really great filmmaker and clearly a very intelligent man and I just can't understand what drove him to make this film mm. at all Adam? Well, I'm not a huge fan of his stuff generally. I think I quite liked Hunt for the Wilder People, actually saying that. But I think his his particular mode of humour isn't really my thing. And actually, if if you have enjoyed his previous films, you, you may well just like it on, on that on that level because you know it is very much the same kind of humour that he's he's delivering here. But I'd say probably a two in anticipation. And just yeah, from everything you'd said about it, Hannah, everything I'd seen, it, it has that air of like a, a one for me mm-hmm. kind of film when a director, as you say, has success with a, a major studio a feature and then is is basically given carte blanche to do something like this. And that they rarely turn out um, successfully. And I'd have to say two in enjoyment and one in retrospect. I don't think it's a film that... A, I don't think it's a film that I would want to watch again, but I just don't also think it's a film that will live long in the memory for a lot of people and will 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 probably be spoken about and there'll be like academia written about it, but not in a not in a good sense. Um, I'd say four two two for me. Uh, he's he's one of my favourite filmmakers, but this one just didn't really work for me. And I'd take this opportunity to recommend Boy so strongly. That's a film where he brings. I mean, it's it's very similar to Jojo Rabbit. Taika Waititi plays a, a father figure that is an outsized character that comes into the life of this boy. Um, I mean, it actually is his father in that case. And but it's a study of identity and community and and it's yeah. This, Just this strikes the thing, that though, balance so well. If you want to make a film about war from a child's perspective and about fanaticism and how people, not just young people, but people can be indoctrinated, just set it in any other period of history or, or around any kind of fictitious war. Don't make it about the Nazis. Anyway, that is Jojo Rabbit. Let us know what you make of it at the usual channels. Up next, Film Club. We're sticking with the Second World War for another satire. This time from Charlie Chaplin, it's The Great Dictator. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.
Released in 1940, The Great Dictator saw Charlie Chaplin using his comic genius to skewer the Third Reich as war broke out across Europe. Using his on-screen resemblance to Hitler to full effect, Chaplin plays a dual role of both the fascist dictator Adnoid Hinkel and a tramp-like Jewish barber who faces anti-Semitic persecution under Hinkel's tyrannical regime. Let's hear a clip from the vintage trailer. It's Adenoid Hinkel, the fooey of Tomania. I bet you recognize him too. It's Charlie, the wonderful, the extraordinary Charlie Chaplin. By a strange trick of fate, the ruthless dictator and Charlie resemble each other like two peas in a pod. Except that while Adenoid Hinkle makes millions of people tremble, Charlie makes them die of laughter. <laughs> I love trailer. I love hearing these old trailers. That Charlie makes them die. Of laughter, <laughs> so good. Uh, Adam, did you die watching this film? Well, yes, I did. Um, obviously, not not literally, because I'm here speaking to you. Uh, I, the reason I wanted to pick this, actually, I think there are there possibly better World War Two satires and and ones which have held up from the period. Um, I think To Be or Not to Be is a really shining example of that. But I just kind of wanted to see how this held up now. Mm-hmm. Um, not just in the context of Jojo Rabbit, but just with with the kind of everything that's kind of going on in the world. And, um, you know, to provide a bit of context uh, to this, it was written actually as Hitler was coming to power. And I think Chaplin had sort of famously said that had he known the full extent of the Nazis' atrocities and what was going on, he probably wouldn't have made this film, or mm-hmm. at least he wouldn't have made it in the way that, that he did. Um, which I think, you know, w- with hindsight, is a pretty bold thing and brave thing to say as a filmmaker um but it just shows that context is everything in in this situation this scenario and uh, crucially i think what he's doing here and why this works so well as a satire is you know he's really he's really going after the, the 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 head figure of this regime and you know again even at the time it was very easy to ridicule hitler and i think chaplin especially as someone who hitler famously borrowed his 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 own look partly on mm-hmm. you know based it on chaplin um and was a big fan and a, a chaplin i think the film was banned in nazi germany obviously and wasn't shown for many years a, a, across kind of um not you know post war as well um and chaplin always said he'd, he'd been fascinated to know what hitler had made of it and i'm i'm, I'm sure he would have watched it mm-hmm. just out of curiosity and someone who is that much of a sort of narcissist and egotist would definitely have given it a whirl but yeah, I think the re- the reason it works fu- fundamentally is because the the humour is, um, I guess it's a lot more like you always know who you're supposed to be laughing at and what side. Not only Charlie Chaplin's character, and I think this is the the brilliance of having the two the like the, the dual role, because you have that contrast between the guy who's being persecuted and the guy that's essentially responsible for it. Um, but yeah, I think you you always know where you are with it. You always know like who you're supposed to be laughing with and at. And I think that's something Jojo Rabbit doesn't quite understand and, and, and get right, just to go back to that. Um, but do you know what? Even just on a basic comedic level, I think as as one of his first, I think it's his first full sound yep. and full, full dialogue mm-hmm. movie, moving away from, from the silent era. And there are uh, moments early on where the, the, the soundtrack or the sound design of the movie actually cuts out and, the, and there are just like slapstick moments played out in silence, which is it's almost like him acknowledging that he's in this transition and um but i think the moments that just stand out for me still are the the little slapstick touches that he throws in like the the bit where he as hinkle when he's in his office and he shimmies up the curtain <laughs> it just gets me every every time mm-hmm. it's like i think the first time i saw that i, I was just cr- crying laughing watching that and yeah there's just so many sm- small moments i think mm-hmm. and, and the scene around the dinner table um that, that that's like classic chaplin i think just on on a satire and just a basic slapstick comedic level, I think this film really holds up. It's really fascinating watching this film alongside the two films we just watched because it does have a First World War sequence at the beginning. Mm. In fact, that opening sequence of The Great Dictator is it's almost a parody of 1917 because it's like <laughs> looking at the First World War with the visual wit of someone like Charlie Chaplin. And some of my favourite bits are in that sequence where he gets in the flak gun and he's just like constantly wheeling around and going upside down, bang forth. It's a person looking at war and trying to see what is visually absurd about it but then the naivety or maybe the straight the straightness of the satire doesn't come from the 
depoliticized or the ignorance of the other two films, like leaving out the context. It's the fact that he didn't have the full context, mm. which is yeah. so fascinating. So he can just look at the plain visual ridiculousness of these characters. I don't think the bit that doesn't age very well for me at all is I don't find making fun of how other languages sound. You know, oh, the like yeah. German gibberish that he and speaks. Italian gibberish, mm. where it's just where the um, the Mussolini standing comes in, and he's just like ah, pizza, cannoli, ravioli. Yeah, that, that's very of the of the time, I think. Yeah. Right, and, and, but I think you know, it wasn't just Chaplin doing that. Of course you know, not. You, you look back, even you look back at kind of shows shows from like the British sitcoms from the seventies mm-hmm. that were doing a similar thing, and definitely hasn't aged particularly well. But, but even in Jojo Rabbit, they make a joke. But that when Hitler is talking to Jojo and he says, "Do you even speak German?" and like he just is like screaming "Hal Hitler" over and over again. Mm-hmm. It, it hasn't aged well, but I, I do get it. <laughs> like, yeah, right. It's a very hard language to learn as well. But I, I do love how this film at times just looks like a political cartoon come come to life, and it has the, <laughs> uh, you know, as I said, the visual wit, but also that this this pointed nature. When there's there's the ballet with the inflatable oh. balloon globe, which gets to the heart of. You know the the totalitarian madness, mm. but, but also how he sees himself as this graceful balletic figure, whilst Gosh. also being an absolute imbecile. The scene that I really love is when um, he's uh, stripping the. Is it, is it one of his generals of all his medals? Yeah. <laughs> he's just like, and he starts taking buttons off and undoes <laughs> yeah. his shirt. He's just like, no, no, no. It's, you know, just they, they don't they don't make him like they used to, do they? How, how does the sentimental ending? This is something that you know Charlie Chaplin, compared to all of the great silent comedians, is is always charged as being the great sentimentalist. And mm. his final monologue here is seen as almost the, the, the his his most sentimental moment. How does that work? Well, I think watching that today, it. It stands up because of how much what he's saying rings true today. I think it almost like torpedoes the film mm-hmm. because it's so it's such an obvious like breaking the fourth wall moment. Like he isn't um, the tramp or, or the Jewish barber or Hinkle anymore. He is it's just Charlie Chaplin and he's speaking basically directly to the audience. But you know it's it's a sort of gambit that paid off massively at the time. It was his biggest box mm-hmm. office success. And I mean when when this came out, remember that the the, the US was still officially you know not not part of the allied movement and and was was very much like not involved in the war mm-hmm. really and you know i think they were especially the the us government were a little bit wary of um you know criticizing and satirizing hitler and but chaplin was this huge movie star and he had he had the the the, the money first and foremost but he, he, you know he was able to get a, product, a, a a film like this made um and it just showed how i think history has shown how how right he was basically it must have been absolutely exhilarating to be a, f- a film goer in that in that day and age, and have that happen at the end, where Charlie Chaplin, a person you have a relationship with for many decades by that point, and, and speaks, haven't he- yeah haven't heard him speak and properly. speaks at great length right at you, uh, must have been chilling to to, mm. to see. I must say, this isn't this is where does this rank for you in, in Charlie Chaplin movies? I don't actually think it's one of his best. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of what we're talking about here, you know, it holds up on its own terms. But if you're talking about, I mean, he made so many great movies. I still think Modern Times is probably my mm-hmm. favorite still. But yeah, he, he's just made, he made so many amazing movies. Um, but I think certainly that if you just take that monologue at the end on its own. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you can just watch the whole thing on YouTube or wherever. Mm-hmm. But obviously, I would implore people to go out and watch the whole film. Um, you can, but you can kind of annex it uh, from the film in a way, and it does, it does, it doesn't hold up on its own, and um, and really resonates. And you know, I think I think it's also coloured slightly by the knowledge of, sort of what happened to Chaplin after this, because you know he 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 wasn't. Um, someone who was necessarily persecuted by external forces he was someone who's persecuted by his own country Mm -hmm. and you know essentially exiled to switzerland and you know i think he was there was a lot of talk at the time about you know him being a communist potentially in the house and american committee were after him and he, he he basically you know went went and lived the rest of his life in isolation from the u.s and mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of really sad watching this film now in the, in the knowledge of that and you know if only they'd kind of actually taken on board what he was what he was saying and the message he was trying to get across it is a fascinating turning point in his career because he never really is this massive titanic figure again this is why i, I probably preferred the two films he made before and after so you you have 
the films he made during the sound period where he was resisting the coming of the talkies with, with City Lights and Modern Times and then the two after The Great Dictator where he makes Monsieur Vadou, which is his almost like darkening of the Charlie Chaplin mythos and Limelight which is him looking back to his days um, on, on the stage but these are films that he's making in like in, in exile mm. I mean in exile in a nice cushy mansion on a sure, lake in Switzerland yeah. but uh, he, it was, yeah, he was never allowed to go back sort of self-imposed exile to a point but essentially it was very difficult for him to continue making films in, in Hollywood mm. and you know even someone with his clout and, and, and financial backing well if we agree with Ricky Gervais no, none of these film stars can tell us anything because they're mm. all complicit in the Hollywood system <laughs> right but anyway 80th anniversary this year yeah maybe we should go and rewatch that yeah I would highly recommend Anyway, that is The Great Dictator. Please do let us know what you think if you watch that or if you watch any other Charlie Chaplin films, go further down the rabbit hole. There's so many good movies and shorts as well to find there. Next week, as Hannah teased, we have A Hidden Life, the latest film from Terence Malick. We have Bombshell, another awards contender. And for Film Club, because we're doing Terence Malick, we're going to go back to his second feature, 1978's Days of Heaven. Let us know what you think of Days of Heaven, if you've seen that, or if you're catching up with it for the first time at the usual channels. That's Truth and Movies on Twitter, truthandmovies at tcolondon.com via email, or at the comments section at lwlies.com slash podcast. Until then, Hannah Adam, thank you so much for joining me this week. I'm Mike Leader, and as always, this has been a 7 Digital production. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.